Radio Mano Papachango. and fellow tangentially speaking listeners this is Tyler I'm uh, hiking down the Sandia Mountains in lovely Albuquerque, New Mexico um, you know, furloughed from work today worked the other days and you know, maybe a little bit financially poor but life is better I think this way not having to work so much um, you know, society may be kind of shit right now but doesn't mean your life has to be so focus on the good things and best of luck to you Hello Chris, this is uh, Zach Martinez, currently talking to you right now through this message via PSAC, Peru, which you may know is in the Sacred Valley, connected to uh, Cusco, which is the jump off point to the fabulous, wonderful, amazing Machu Picchu. Uh, I've been coming back to Peru for the last 12 years and uh, met my wife here. We got married about 10 years ago. and. Uh, it's just a magical place. Keep coming back. Love it. Sitting up here watching the sunrise. Had a little morning jog. Smoked a little joint. And now I'm just going to immerse myself in nature here. Just wanted to say hi and uh, much blessings to you, brother. Hey, Chris Ryan. Uh, my name is Rick. I come from the Isle of Guam. Currently living in uh, Connecticut, New England. Um, but right now I'm actually in the southern part of Sweden in the Skona region. More specifically, I'm in uh, the small seaside village of Istad. Me and my brother-in-law just took a bus out here. We traveled up to uh, this place called Alastenar. It's a uh, ship-shaped arrangement of stones very similar to uh, the Stonehenge. And um, I just actually was finished playing Ride Cooter's Paris, Texas to one of these stones. So on a ball next slide. So I just want to say I really appreciate everything that you have said. Your podcast has been very instrumental in uh, shaping decisions in my life. And uh, you have taught me to travel and see a world greater and to see beyond the norms that we're taught to be in. So I really uh, thank you for that. I appreciate the podcast and I send my love to you, all your guests and all your listeners. So Skull from Skull from Rick. Thank you so much for those messages. Tyler in the Sandia Mountains, Zach in Peru waiting for the sunset. Dude, talk about wake and bake. Sparking up a joint before the sun rises, that's, that's commitment. And uh, Rick in Sweden, really cool that you uh, included a little music at the end of that. When you said, I just played some Rikuder to the stones here i thought dude why aren't you playing it for us and then you did play a little so thank you for that all right before we get into this uh a few uh, house housekeeping things to remind you of first of all we've got a map of tangentially speaking listeners um which is a very useful way to get to meet other people and uh, you can put your own information in there so that people can find you uh, it's facilmap, F-A-C-I-L-M-A-P dot org forward slash T speaking. Go there, 
click on it, add yourself, say who you are, maybe throw in an email address or something. I wouldn't put your home address, just, you know, be safe. But um, basically, so if people are going to be around your town, they can reach out to you and say, hey, I listened to the podcast. Do you want to get a beer? Uh, it's a cool way to do that. Believe me, I've been doing this for years and it's fucking awesome. Uh, if you're going to be in L.A. between uh, from August 18th to the 20th, I would highly recommend you consider checking out the Ancestral Health Symposium. Uh, my friend Nomi is the president and uh, she's she is an amazing organizer of everything. So I'm sure it's going to be awesome. Again, I'll be there. Anya and I will be there. Um, tickets are available through the AHS website, Ancestral Health Symposium. That's ancestralhealth.org. Um, all sorts of people talking about what we can learn about how to be healthy, happy, uh, and fit through understanding how our ancestors lived. So make sure you check that out. And the last bit of housekeeping is... Check out the Risk podcast. You've heard me talk about it before. The host, Kevin Allison, has been on this podcast. I've been on Risk. It's a podcast where people tell stories they never thought they would tell out loud. Uh, nothing is too intimate, too loaded, too problematic. Um, so if you like that kind of stuff, if you like people who are telling it like it is and who have had amazing experiences that they're willing to share. And I know you do. That's why you're listening to this podcast. Check out the risk podcast. It's R I S K exclamation point. You can get it anywhere. Podcasts are available. All right. Thank you for listening. Here we go. Uh, this is going to be a Roma episode. A lot of stuff's been sort of piling up in my head and, uh, I thought maybe I would just, uh, rant and rave a little bit here. I'm back in Tbilisi, Georgia, after having spent three days up in the mountains in a place called, um, what the hell is it called? Kazbegi. Kazbegi. I have trouble. Georgian words are uh, very hard for me to remember. I mean, I've been here a couple of weeks and I'm still working on thank you and hello. <laughs> which I mean, definitely is a reflection of my own linguistic stupidity, but uh, it's also that the words are complicated and uh, the alphabet is incomprehensible. And uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty alien. It, it's an interesting place. A lot of strange things about this place. For example, they've got cars... You drive on the right side of the road, but they've got cars from both systems. So you look at somebody driving by, maybe the driver's on the right side of the vehicle, maybe the driver's on the left side of the vehicle. You never know. Uh, that's a strange thing. I've never been in a country like that before. I've been in countries where it's one side or the other side, but I've never been in a country where it's both sides. That's pretty strange. And speaking of driving, holy shit. Uh, it's strange because the people here are, seem to be pretty chill, friendly, it's safe. I haven't felt any kind of threat, um, walking the streets of the city at night, walking by a group of dudes sitting around drinking beer. There's none of that like, Hey, let's jump this guy. There's no 
fucking foreigner. What are you doing here? There's no, uh, let me sell you stuff. You know, let me see what I can extract from you. You know, these forms of aggressive energy that you can run into traveling in different parts of the world. None of that here. But the driving is insane. The driving is like somebody wants to pull into traffic. They just pull into traffic. It's like they don't stop and wait for a gap in the traffic. They just pull in and sort of assume that the cars are going to let them in and not collide with them, which I guess is the way it works. But yeah, it's a strange, it's kind of like LA aggressiveness taken to the next level. If you've never been in LA or never driven in LA, you might not know what I'm talking about there, but there's, there's this kind of like opportunistic fuck everybody else. I'm just doing what's right for me. Which is strange because I don't sense that, as I said, in, in other levels of interaction here. It seems to just express itself in the driving. So I don't know. That's a weird thing. Um, I wanted to say, speaking of weird things, I uh, in Tanzania, there's a strange thing that happens. Um, when you walk into a place or you, you meet somebody for the first time, whether it's a waiter or just somebody that you're meeting, they begin by saying you're welcome. So you just, so a waiter might walk up to you in a restaurant and say, you're welcome. Now, of course, as an American being raised in the, you're welcome, thank you, dialogue, ping pong situation, my immediate reaction is to say, thank you. So they say, you're welcome. I say, thank you. And now I feel like time is flowing backwards. I don't know what, what's supposed to happen next. They look at me confused. I look at them confused. The whole thing is just totally confusing. And uh, finally, I try to explain this to Elia, our Tanzanian guide, who we spent nine days with last episode. Um, and he was, and he laughed. He just laughed and laughed. And he was like, oh, now I understand why it's so confusing. Because I explained to him that in, in America, you say you're welcome after someone says thank you. And so it sort of triggers this dialogue, but um, in reverse. And he explained that in Swahili, your greeting to someone is to say you're welcome in the literal sense. You are welcome here. Right. I welcome you to this space. Um, Yeah. So it's just a funny little uh, slip slide that happens when someone walks up to you. I mean, try it sometime. Just walk up to someone and say, you're welcome and see what they say. I'll bet you they're going to say thank you. (laughs) It's fucking weird. All right. So let's see what else. Um. I wanted to to talk a bit about, well, there are a few topics I wanted to talk about today, things that are, that have been on my mind. I've been traveling for close to a year now, maybe some practical stuff for people who are thinking about doing something like this. Uh, You know, I don't have a house, I don't have an apartment, so gave up the apartment, I've got the van, Uh, Oliver's taking care of the van in my absence. And so I basically was looking and saying, okay, well, my rent is like, you know, 12 to 1500 bucks a month, depending, you know, where I've rented, what I've been doing. So what if I spent that much on 
Airbnbs and rooms and so on. So that's under 50 bucks a night. Uh, averaging to under 50 bucks a night, right? In some places it's going to be more. Some places it's going to be less. And of course, Anya and I are traveling together. So then you divide that by two to get your personal expense. Although if you're traveling alone, you're not going to get half, right? So it works out to be much cheaper uh, per person if you're traveling as a couple. Um, unless you're staying in dorm rooms, which you can do um, lots of places. But yeah, at my age, I don't really want to sleep in a room with eight other backpackers. Um, but definitely in Tanzania and uh, Thailand and lots of places that we've been, there are people staying in dorm rooms. So you can, you know, nine, ten bucks a night, you can have a bed. Um, but right now, like we're in this Airbnb in Tbilisi. It's beautiful. It's really nice. Beautiful bathroom, shower, big queen-size bed. I'm sitting in the kitchen area, washing machine, fully equipped kitchen and all that. Really nice part of town. And it's 45 bucks a night. And the dollar is very strong right now. So if you've got some money, if you've been thinking about traveling, um, you know, maybe if you can wait till the summer's over and air prices will go down. Um, because air is still very expensive and chaotic and bizarre. Um, but starting September, October, November, it's going to be much cheaper and easier to fly. And the dollar is the strongest it's been in 20 years against most currencies. Turkey, for example, is very, very cheap, much cheaper than it's been in the last 20 years. Um, the dollar reached parity against the euro recently. Um, so that's another aspect of international travel to consider where is the dollar relative to other currencies and right now it's at uh, near all-time high so if you're american looking to travel that's something to think about um but yeah it's you know i know some people might be looking at my situation from outside and saying ah fuck you you're you know traveling around staying in hotels and you know living living What's the word? High on the hog. Um, but I'm spending less money than I would spend with a regular one-bedroom apartment, you know, anywhere in the U.S. probably, uh, you know, other than like way out in the middle of nowhere. But even in Crestone, we were renting a very small house, very simple two-bedroom house, and we were paying uh, 1300 bucks a month, I think, um, including utilities. So... Yeah, it kind of it kind of makes sense uh, economically. Although after being on the road for a year, I do have to say uh, it gets old. Uh, I remember, I don't know, I traveled a lot in my twenties and thirties, and and maybe it was different. Maybe I was different, but I am getting tired of not having control of my immediate surroundings. You know, like, and we were talking about this yesterday. Like being in the van is going to be so relaxing because we're in the same bed we've got the same pillows the same blankets you know like the same lighting even though it's just a van even though it's just a tiny bubble uh having control of that bubble is really nice as opposed to always a different bed this one's too firm this one's too soft these pillows suck it's always something you know there's a kid upstairs and the AC doesn't work. The Wi-Fi is too slow. The neighbors are looking in the windows. You know, whatever it is, there's always something. 
And when you've got your own place, you can control those variables. Um, you know, or if you're in the van, you can just drive somewhere else and get away from the creepy campers or whatever the problem is, the barking dog. Whereas uh, often in travel, you don't have control over those things. And it's it's so funny how we, I mean, this is no great insight, but the way we notice the things that annoy us and don't notice the things that aren't annoying us, right? Like right now, I'm not noticing that there's no dog barking. Uh, there's a great story. I think it's Sherlock Holmes, the story of the dog that didn't bark or something like that. Noticing the absence of something is a skill that's very difficult to cultivate, but is so valuable, right? Think about the things that you're not noticing the absence of right now. You're not noticing, hopefully, the absence of illness. You're not noticing the absence of some kind of weird skin rash or unexplained pain in your back or uh, nausea. You're not noticing the absence of the fucking dog barking outside the window or the kids stomping around upstairs. You're not noticing the absence of jock itch. You're not noticing the absence of a lot of things. Things that in their presence would make you miserable, but in their absence don't necessarily make you happy. What a weird situation that is. Believe it or not, I was thinking about this the other night when I was taking a piss. And it was one of those toilets with the... You know, the, the seat that goes down uh, like on a, uh, I don't know, it's like hydraulic or something. So it doesn't just slam down. It You don't have to set it down. You just sort of tip it and it slowly goes down. So I was thinking about that and like, oh, that's a cool invention. You know, I, I just haven't thought about that a lot. But I see those about half of the toilet seats now have that. And it's kind of cool. You don't, you know, slam it down and break it and all that. But then I thought, I don't really notice this in its presence, but I do notice the problem with it is it makes you accustomed to that kind of seat, especially if you have one at home, right? And so 99% of the time you take a piss, if you piss standing up, you have one of those seats where you just tip it and it slowly goes down. Then you go out and you're in a restaurant, you take a piss and you tip the thing and it doesn't have that and it slams down, makes a big noise, freaks you out. So what's the advantage here? The, the advantage is it's a luxury that you immediately become accustomed to and then you forget that it's a, a luxury, right? It just becomes normal. It happens so quickly and it's like this weird kind of, I don't know, it's like um, inflation or something. It's something loses value so quickly. And I came across a, a quote from Yuval Harari, who wrote Sapiens. Um, he says, one of history's few iron laws is that luxuries tend to become necessities and to spawn new obligations. Once people get used to a certain luxury, they take it for granted. Then they begin to count on it. Finally, they reach a point where they can't live without it. Over the few decades, we have invented countless time-saving machines that are supposed to make life more relaxed. 
washing machines, vacuum cleaners, dishwashers, telephones, mobile phones, computers, email. We thought we were saving time, but instead we revved up the treadmill of life to 10 times its former speed and made our days more anxious and agitated. Okay, now that's a really interesting thought. It's basically what I was just talking about with the toilet seats. The one quibble I have with this is he says, finally they reach a point where they can't live without it. Now, of course, that's hyperbole, but I think it's hyperbole that's worth examining. Can we not live without washing machines, vacuum cleaners, dishwashers, telephones, mobile phones, computers, email? Can we not live without these things? Really? Because I have lived without a vacuum cleaner for years and years. It's called a broom. If you don't have carpets, wall-to-wall carpet, you don't need a vacuum cleaner. You have rugs, you take them outside, you shake them. And you take a broom and you sweep up the dust. Dishwashers. Uh, I've had dishwashers in lots of places I've lived and I only use them to dry the dishes as a dish rack. Because I kind of like washing dishes. And when it's only one or two people, it's easier to just wash them than to pile them up in a dishwasher and wait a week until you finally get enough dishes, dishes in there to run the damn thing. Mobile phones? Uh, I don't know. I lived till I was 40 without a fucking mobile phone. It was fine. Uh, I know how to read maps. I know how to ask for directions. And honestly, mobile phones, I can't stand to talk on the fucking things because I can never hear what people are saying. I can't, I don't like typing with my thumbs. Uh, I'm not that impressed by mobile phones. I could certainly live without mobile phones. Computer, well, yeah, I mean, of course we could live, but I wouldn't be doing a podcast, I guess. So my point is, A, to be very careful about the addictions that we slide into uh, without necessarily realizing it. And I mean addiction in a very literal sense, right? Because the thing about addiction is it feels good at the beginning and then it only feels bad in its absence, right? The absence of the drug or the behavior or whatever it is, the money feels bad. The presence of it doesn't feel good anymore. It only, ha- it only feels good at the beginning. Later, what qualifies, is a- qualifies it as an addiction is that you need it just to feel normal. Not to feel better than normal, to feel normal. You need that dopamine hit. You need that extra million dollars. You need that adulation. You need that gambling. You need that booze or whatever the substance is. When people ask me about sex addiction, is sex addiction a real thing? My answer is addiction's a real thing, but sex addiction isn't. Whether you're addicted to sex or cocaine or fucking status or fame or whatever it is those are that's real but 
it's not about the thing. It's not about the cocaine or the alcohol or the tobacco, although tobacco is a complicated one because there are chemical things going on there. But there are chemical things going on in the brain all the time. Um, but it's not that sex is addictive. It's that there's some sort of hole that's developed that temporarily gets filled with sex or drugs or gambling. Think of it as like a bucket with a hole in the bottom, right? You can fill it, but then it drains and you need to keep filling it over and over and over again. So speaking of which, let me respond to um, a question that came in on the July open thread on Substack. Those of you who don't subscribe to the podcast don't have access to this, but it's pretty cool. It's uh, one of the benefits of being a subscriber is you have access to these open threads. And um, I set up a new one every month. And um, this is the July one. So a guy named Cole wrote in this morning and his comment was interesting. And, and I thought, you know, normally I, I respond to these uh, in writing when I see them. And um, in this, this month, there's 65 comments already. So it gives you a sense of the kind of activity. It's pretty active and it's only halfway through the month. Um, anyway, Cole said, I've been looking for a girlfriend and have been going on dates. I'm in my mid-20s. I can pretty well sense when we're a match personality-wise. However, uh, things become problematic around beauty and attraction. And Cole says, I don't, you know, some things I'm wondering about are whether I have unrealistic expectations and formulated beauty standards projected through culture. Do I have unrealistic ego expectations of whom I should be with uh, in terms of physical looks? Um, and am I overly concerned about the way other guys will judge me based on how hot? my girlfriend is. And then Cole says, Chris, you've dated lots of people over the years. And when I hear you speak of women you've been with, you're always complimentary. She was beautiful. She was gorgeous. What does this mean to you? Given that you've lived all around the world, I'm assuming you've dated lots of different looking women and hence cross into other cultural beauty standards. Um, how do you determine if a woman is physically attractive and, um, how have you been able to appreciate being with different women? And how can I move toward appreciating the intrinsic pleasure of being with a particular person? Now, I think this is a really important thing to think about. And um, I think it's awesome that somebody like Cole is thinking about this in his early or mid-20s. Um, because I think this is a problem, uh, it's a trap that people get in, and I think it's a trap that men in particular are um, vulnerable to. I'm going to generalize here about men and women, okay? And from the get-go, I just want to, cards on the table, I'm a man. I'm a cisgender, straight, white man, blah, blah, blah. Disclaimer. So I'm just talking about my own experience and um, the experience of people, you know, who've 
shared things with me. But I do think that men are much more visually oriented. They Their sexual fantasies are more visual. If you talk to women about what turns them on, what their fantasies are, what they think about when they masturbate, it's generally a narrative. It's a story. Um, if you talk to men about it, it's generally visual. It's images. Um, and... I think that very essential difference is not cultural. I think that's largely innate. Of course, it's shaped by culture, like everything is, pretty much. Um, But I think that that sort of visual versus narrative component is quite close to universal and very deeply innate in us and um, so I think that expresses itself in men being more concerned about looks in their potential partners and women being more concerned about non-visual cues like confidence sense of humor intelligence um Things like that. Now, this is a, you know, this is a good news, bad news situation because it does mean that men who aren't, you know, walking around with six pack abs and, you know, ideal physiques can still be very appealing to women. And in fact, a lot of those guys are kind of um, repulsive to women because it shows how it it says things about the personality of the guy. I mean, if the guy's just naturally buff, then fine. But if it's a guy that you can tell spends a lot of time at the gym and is really, you know, looking at himself in the window every time he walks by something and, you know, constantly sort of monitoring himself for a lot of women, that's a big turnoff because it suggests a lack of confidence. It suggests a lack of intelligence. It suggests someone who takes himself too seriously is going to be a pain in the ass to hang out with. So that's good news for dudes, right? You don't need to be one of those guys. Just work on your personality and your intelligence and your um, experiences and you know, be able to make someone feel comfortable and you got a shot. Now, it's bad news for a lot of women because a lot of the guys that you're going to be dealing with are kind of shallow in that respect. And um, and that is a problem. Now, I would say, to, to respond directly to Cole, I would say that part of the reason I traveled a lot and part of my sort of ambition in life through travel and other avenues of growth has been precisely what you're pointing at, which is to recognize levels of beauty that lie beneath the surface. And I mean this not just in terms of dating and interacting with women. I mean this in all of life because What I've realized is that 
being distracted and and again this is so trite this is so fucking uh, obvious but it's a struggle to not be distracted by these surface things and to recognize that what lies beneath the surface is where you're really going to be spending your time and so you know you can walk by a house and say, well, okay, I don't know, that just looks like a normal house, nothing special about it. But if you're lucky enough to be invited inside, you might walk through that front door and be like, holy fuck, this is so nice in here. This is so comfortable. All this beautiful wood everywhere. And the way it's laid out is so comfortable and it smells great. There's like, you've been cooking stew all day and there's a beautiful fireplace with a fire going on. Look at these awesome Moroccan carpets and cushions and candles and oh look at that beautiful shower with a big bathtub and plants everywhere you didn't know any of that was there when you walked by that house right now I know this is the tritest thing you know can't tell a book by its cover no shit okay sure Chris thanks for nothing but the point is to really have enough experience that you believe this and to, I mean, in my case, it only came with time. I guess maybe it was accelerated a little bit by learning and by having the kind of suspicions that Cole is expressing here, right? Do I have unrealistic expectations and beauty standards that have been formulated through culture? Yes, you do. No doubt you do. Now, the unrealistic expectations may be just that you think you're going to like only be happy with some drop-dead gorgeous woman that all your male friends are going to be like, oh my God, dude, she's so fucking hot. That's just immaturity. Um, And the fact that you recognize that shows that you're already moving beyond that, which is fucking cool. Um, And unrealistic beauty standards. Yes, culture, advertising specializes in creating unrealistic expectations. Not just unrealistic, but corrosive. um, That create unhappiness for everybody. And a story I'm sure I've told on the podcast before, but it really illustrates this. Years ago, I was living in New York City in the Diamond District. I met this couple and they invited me to dinner and the guy, I mean, it was a complicated thing. They basically wanted me to impregnate the woman as like a surrogate. I mean, that's a whole other story. Um, But anyway, the guy who was infertile because he was getting chemo for leukemia. That's why they were looking for a sperm donor. Um, He worked as a photo retoucher. Now, this is pre-digital. This was in the 80s. So this was done, they called it um, airbrushing. And his clients, his biggest clients were Playboy and Penthouse magazines. And he's the one who told me that often the the woman that you saw in the photo was did, does not exist. She does not exist because it's one woman's head 
like down to her, you know, her waist or something. And then another woman's from the waist down. So you've got two different women combined. They take, you know, one woman who's got large breasts, but women who have large breasts tend to have large hips and thighs, right? But the ideal, this ideal in the 1980s anyway, was large breasts, small ass and thighs. This is pre-Kardashian, right? So they would take one woman's from the waist down and fuse her with this other woman from the waist up. It's That woman doesn't exist. So all these guys, all these 15-year-old boys like me, were looking at this saying, oh my God, that's what I want. That's the woman. That's the ideal. Well, good luck with that because that woman does not exist. You're never going to find that woman. Physically. Right? Or he told me they used to put ace bandages under large-breasted women under their breasts and wrap the bandage around her neck to hold her large breasts up against gravity and then his job was to carefully remove the ace bandages so you couldn't see them so you thought a woman with 38 triple d breasts they just are suspended in space like she's on you know fucking a spaceship or something, a zero gravity <laughs> environment. Well, that's not real. And so this ideal is created and it's not just like, you know, not everyone can look like Sophia Loren. Even Sophia Loren doesn't look like Sophia Loren because of all the shit that they've done. By the way, go find some old photos of Sophia Loren and Raquel Welsh and, um, Jane, uh, what's her name? Jane, I uh, forget her name. But these these ideal beauty stars from the 40s, 50s, 60s. And you'll see they, they had bodies. They were Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn Monroe was not like a skinny fashion model with large tits and a beautiful face. She was a woman. She was shapely. So, yes, beauty standards... Are culturally determined they change dramatically over time they're distorted by commercial interests um i i would argue that they're distorted by the fact that a lot of the people who make decisions uh particularly in the 70s and 80s probably still now about what models get chosen and featured are gay men so they're attracted to, you know, in an aesthetic sense, to women who look like boys. And I mean, that's just, if you're not, if you're a straight man, that's not really, biologically, that's not really innately attractive. So anyway, yes, culture changes, culture imposes this, and freeing yourself from that is very important because beauty is not about some real life woman being as close as possible to some computer generated fantasy. Um, and I mean that on an aesthetic sense, but I also mean that on deeper levels. So, you know, going back to the house analogy 
if you buy a house based on how it looks from the street, you're doing yourself a disservice. You want to choose your house based upon how comfortable you feel living there. So, and that's not like some Jesus like, oh, you know, just learn to, you know, ignore the aesthetic or something. It's understanding that the aesthetic is one element of a relationship. And that the more advanced and and mature you are as a man, the it's not that. It's not that her beauty is less important to you. It's that you see her beauty in deeper ways. I mean, I have this thing with women where I look at a woman I love and I see her as a little girl and I see her as an old lady and I see everything in between. And it's all beautiful. I see the thing in her that doesn't change from the time she's a little girl till she's a 90-year-old woman, that's what's beautiful in her. And I would encourage you to try to find that, to try, as you already are, to learn to see people in that way, to recognize that beauty. It's not that beauty doesn't matter. It's that we're taught to have a very restrictive understanding of what beauty is. Beauty is not how the house looks from the street. Beauty is what it feels like to be inside, to be living there. And, you know, what other guys think, fuck that. Yeah, don't even waste your time. Uh, and I know that's easy to say, but honestly, you know, everybody's on their own trajectory and, you know, these guys whose opinions that you worry about, um, they're going to fade out of your life and you're on this trip yourself and it's up to you to decide what matters and what doesn't. And, you know, if you're with a woman who makes you happy, who's kind, who's sweet, where you click together sexually, who makes you laugh, who appreciates you. And that's a really big deal. Does she see how cool you are? Does she value the things about you that are special? That's what matters. And, you know, guys saying, "Eh, is she that hot or not that hot or whatever? Who gives a shit? Because... Those guys will see how happy you are. And those guys will wonder what's going on inside that house. What's going on behind those walls that makes him so happy? Why is she so happy? That's what matters. That's what you should be trying to inspire other people to think. Not, you know, your girlfriend's hotter than my girlfriend or some dumb shit like that. All right, kids, that's enough yammering from Uncle Chris. Uh, I'm going to play you out with... Uh, tune that uh, Rick reminded me of when he was talking about Ry Cooter. I love Ry Cooter. And if you don't know about Ry Cooter, you should check him out. It's R-Y and then his last name C-O-O-D-E-R. He's uh, a great traveler himself. He's a great blues guitarist, but he's 
done albums with uh, Ali Farka Touré in Mali, in Africa, who's a sort of a, a kora player who basically is like a blues guitarist, but playing on the kora. Um, he did a great record uh, down by the river, I think it's called, um, with an Indian musician from India. It's fantastic. He's, uh, I think he did the Buena Vista Social Club with the Cuban musicians. He's been all over the place. And uh, he's a really interesting cat. I'd love to meet him at some point. Not going to happen, but he's someone I admire. Anyway, he was in a band. Um, they might still work together. I don't know. But it was called Little Village. And uh, it was with uh, John Hyatt and uh, some other musicians. And this song is called Do You Want My Job? And it's kind of a Caribbean feel. I think I may have played it on the podcast years ago. Um, and it tells the story of what happens when uh, sort of a, I don't want to say primitive, but when a you know subsistence level economy gets integrated into the world of commerce and international trade and so on. And as you can imagine, it's kind of a sad story. But it's about, you know, think about this when you you read somebody like Steven Pinker or some economist saying, you know, 500 million people have been pulled up out of poverty, extreme poverty in the last 50 years. Civilization's fucking awesome and capitalism works so well. Well, what that means is that People who had no money now have a little money. In practical terms, what that means is people who didn't need any fucking money because they had a garden or they were fishing or they were hunting or they were able to live without money. Now they need money. And so they've been forced to get a job at the farm or in the factory or whatever because the fish are gone because the rain stopped coming because the animals are all gone, whatever it is. And this is happening all over the world. And it's been happening for a long time, but it's accelerating as fewer and fewer people are existing without money uh, and the environments are drying up and the animals are disappearing. So this is a very cheerful song called Do You Want My Job by Little Village? Uh, Rye Cooter, John Hyatt, and some other dudes whose names I can't remember right now. But check them out. And thank you for listening to this. This is going out to everyone. I do bonus Romas, Bromas, uh, which are only for subscribers. But this one's going out to everyone. Hope you enjoy it. And I hope you will consider signing up at Substack and uh, becoming a uh, you know, a hitchhiker who chips in for gas. You're welcome either way, uh, but there's a lot of bonus material for uh, paying subscribers. Thank you for listening, everybody. Hope you're doing really well and uh, sending you lots of love. Do you want my job?
introductory music is called Bright Side of the Sun. It's by Basin and Range. And now I will turn you over to my mom and the great Carsey Blanton singing Smoke Alarm. Okay, Mom, uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. (laughs) She didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death. Design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay. There you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're going to say. Doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch. Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage, singing in your chest. You wanna shut it up, but give it a rest. You're gonna die one day. Why do we waste our time thinking about a reputation? to the ground. 